we can't save everybody, but we can save every life we can. And it became sort of the marching order from that statement. And it became really the model for what we tried to do. And everybody's actions rotated around trying to save as many lives as possible. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Our guest on War Docs is former Deputy Surgeon General of the Army, retired Major General Dr. Richard A. Stone. Dr. Stone returned to government service to lead the Veterans Health Administration in 2018, just prior to one of the most critical public health challenges of our lifetimes. In this episode, Dr. Stone describes the challenges and the personal stories of his team as they worked against the clock to provide medical support during the COVID-19 pandemic that impacted the entire globe. He describes the principles of leadership that informed and guided his decisions and provides important lessons learned as a nation and about healthcare delivery as we prepare for the next crisis. He talks about his recently published book, Save Every Life You Can, a reflection on leadership and saving lives during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today in War Docs, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General, Dr. Richard A. Stone, to discuss his book, Save Every Life You Can. Rich, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. And the first question I have is, what inspired you to write a book? And, and who is it written for? That's not as easy an answer as you'd like it to be. And uh, let me just say the following. One of the books that I've always kept in my library is a book called The Great Influenza, which is the story of what happened in the 1918 influenza epidemic at the beginning of World War I and through the early stages of World War I. There was tremendous leadership lessons learned and tremendous strain on the worldwide healthcare systems. When I left the VA in mid-2021, after leading the VA healthcare system for three years, I was encouraged by some of my mentors to memorialize what it was to lead the largest healthcare system in this nation through the, the pandemic, a once-in-a-hundred-year event. The idea being that a hundred years from now, let's hope, a hundred years from now, when the next pandemic occurs, who will tell the story of what we learned? Who will tell the story of what the stressors were on all of the systems that we worked so hard to sustain through the pandemic? So you named the book, Save Every Life You Can. And you put a picture on the cover of a healthcare professional who looks like they've been wearing PPE for 36 hours and it's kind of ingrained in their face. How did you come up with that title? And what were you trying to portray with that picture? As we worked with this nationwide delivery system, 175 hospitals, 363,000 employees, twice a day, we got all of our leaders up on a health operations center video conference. And during the early stages of the pandemic, it became very clear that the 24,000 beds of the VA was going to be unable to sustain the American healthcare system, million bed system when it became overwhelmed. Our hope was that it would not become overwhelmed across the nation 
simultaneously, that there'd be some areas under more pressure than others. But it became very, very clear that we were going to have to concentrate our efforts on the most ill patients and that our effort was not to take the minimally compromised patient from COVID, but to take the sickest patient. And therefore, at the end of one of those uh, conferences, with about 400 people on the line, one of the leaders had said, I just don't see how we can do this. I don't see how we don't collapse in the same manner that we're seeing hospitals collapse around the nation, especially in New York at that time. And I made the statement of, look, we can't save everybody, but we can save every life we can. And it became sort of the marching order from that statement. And it became really the model for what we tried to do. And everybody's actions rotated around trying to save as many lives as possible. And, and literally thousands of people were saved by the VA as we accepted civilian patients for the first time into VA hospital beds. Now, the picture on the cover is an anonymous healthcare worker who asked that she remain anonymous. And whether she's a doc or, or a nurse or a or a respiratory therapist or a food care worker who's been working at the bedside of a patient, I thought that she reflected exactly what we saw in the staffs for this entirety of the pandemic. And that was a staff that was absolutely engaged at the bedside in their PPE. The PPE created a, an inability to communicate very effectively. And almost every hospital I went into, healthcare workers discussed their concern over the fact that they could not share emotions very effectively from behind all of that garb and how difficult it was for them to decompress their emotions of these taking care of these very, very sick patients. So in the book, you talked about your earlier years before your time at the VA that helped you in the subsequent challenges you had with uh, leadership scenarios. Can you share one of those experiences that helped shape you? I talked about the Health Operations Center. When I got to Afghanistan early in 2003, I was commanding the medical task force and I was exposed to a, a combat engaged operations center that literally twice a day, the commanding general, who at that time was Lloyd Austin, a one star, now the secretary of defense, but General Austin was the commanding general of the task force. And, and what impressed me was the ability to communicate directly from the commanding general through every level of command. Nobody had to wonder what he was thinking. And nobody had to interpret what a line leader was saying to him because it was done directly. I was really impressed with how quickly learning could occur. I was also impressed with how an entire task force in combat could rotate to the needs of a commander who needed support in an area and how that could be worked really within a matter of seconds. So we replicated that at the VA and literally problems were solved without my engagement. And let me give you an example of that. New Orleans was overrun with patients. Uh, they ran out of ventilators one day. They said, look, in 12 hours, we're going to be in a real mess. Well, by the time that call ended 30 minutes later, there was 24 ventilators on a truck uh, leaving Minneapolis on its way to New Orleans. Didn't take anybody to order it. It didn't take me to get engaged in it. It simply was the creation 
of a venue that allowed leaders to interact with each other effectively. Tell us a little bit about the four missions of the Veterans Health Administration and how the fourth mission really got the VA involved in the COVID response. So obviously the primary mission of the VA is to care for veterans' health care needs, and they've done that for a hundred years. And it's it's been an extraordinary mission that's evolved, especially after World War II, evolved pretty significantly. But the second mission is to do research uh, on diseases and illnesses that occur in veterans. And obviously there's lots are written recently about burn pits and depleted uranium. And we've been talking for 30 years about Agent Orange exposure. The research accounts to about two and a half billion dollars worth of research a year. The third mission is to be an educator of future healthcare providers in the nation. And every day in the VA, 124,000 physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, technicians show up to be trained. In fact, the largest trainer of healthcare providers in the nation is the VA. And the fourth mission, and this is really the source of your question, is to be the backstop of the American healthcare system. That's been for about 30 years. The organization has very quietly supported areas of earthquake, fire, flood, hurricane, and we've moved into areas and very quietly taken care of patients or supported healthcare systems that were struggling. These are usually done under the Stafford Act emergency declarations that you're listeners are so familiar with, but at times we don't. We just move into an area. Let me give you an example of that. A number of years ago in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, there were more than 50 victims overnight, and we got a call from federal law enforcement that this was a very difficult process of uh, reuniting families with their deceased loved ones and ask for our help. And overnight, we put more than 50 behavioral health providers and psychiatrists on the ground in Orlando that worked really tirelessly for a number of weeks. It ended up to be not only the support of the community, but also of those federal law enforcement because of the horrendous nature of, of the crime site. But that type of work, I don't think anybody knew we were there except for the VA providers and the federal law enforcement and the families that we interacted with. But it's that kind of work that we do. You know, know, I said earlier that there's a million civilian hospital beds in this country. About 85 to 90% of them are filled at any given time, which leaves a little over 100,000 beds available. Unfortunately, many of those beds are not staffed, and therefore there's very little surge capacity available. Hence, early in the pandemic, you heard the governor of New York talking about his need for beds that resulted in the movement of one of the Navy hospital ships into New York Harbor in March of 2020. Right before COVID started, you served as the executive in charge of the VA and acting undersecretary of the Veterans Health Administration, overseeing the 175 hospitals and 1,250 outpatient clinics. You mentioned the number of beds and the staffing in America. How was the VA positioned to take a leadership role in something that's long-lasting like COVID and nationwide, not regional? Yeah, very quietly, uh, the VA maintains a very robust system that includes emergency operations experts from everything from weather forecasters to engineers, also about 400 vehicles that are rolling stock with everything from pharmacies to mobile feeding units to 
old mobile ICUs that we can bolt onto a hospital or, or put into a parking lot of a hospital. We have units that create their own oxygen, their own water. And the main issue is, is to create the personnel uh, that uh, can fall in on that type of surge capacity. In our newest hospitals in places like New Orleans, we were able to convert the entire hospital into an ICU. And it went from a 12-bed ICU to a 100-bed ICU in a matter of 72 hours. So there's tremendous agility in this system. There's a tremendous ability to sustain its operation. Uh, remember, there's 115,000 nurses. There's uh, over 30,000 physician provider. This is a system that now is up to 388,000 personnel. It's about triple the size of the DOD system. And look, both you and I grew up in the DOD and we both love the DOD system. But as a federal provider of healthcare, VA is an, an extraordinary, strong partner to support the American people. I think a lot of us are thinking about what the NDMS system looks like for the future, but it should be expected that federal healthcare in both DOD, VA, Indian Health, the NIA will be part of a domestic response as we move into the future. One of the things that was impressive to me was how you were able to take the nursing hiring timeline from about 120 days, four months to a matter of weeks in order to get people who were needed on board quickly. Was that something that you were able to sustain? And did those personnel stay on with the VA even after COVID has kind of died down a little bit? So let me say to you that yes, people stay, stayed on. So that's the easy part. The, the tough part is no, we were not able to sustain the hiring improvements. Hiring improvements occurred because the Office of Personnel Management allowed us some exemptions because we just couldn't hire fast enough. And therefore, nursing personnel especially were being moved to civilian hirers, civilian organizations that were hiring. And we couldn't make a decision fast enough. And I said, if we can't compete in the marketplace, we can't sustain this organization. So OPM gave us some relief that we have one in some markets, we got down to three days hiring. Literally, you would come in, we'd look at your resume, we'd do some background check, and within 72 hours, we'd make an offer to hire. Unfortunately, what's happened is both OPM and the VA have moved away from those accelerated hiring situations, and they've dropped back to over 100 days in hiring, which has resulted in some of the articles you've seen recently on access. The current undersecretary has done a spectacular job of trying to reverse that and get those efficiencies back into the system. Now, let me go back to your second question before you go on to your next one. When people join the VA, they love the mission. This mission is really extraordinary in that they get to know their patients. Patients have a lifetime relationship with the system and uh, they don't leave. They stay because they love the mission. They love taking care of the heroes. They also have usually their, their spouse is, is a active duty service member or veteran or their parents or their brother or sister was. And therefore holding people to this mission and getting them to stay is, is a pretty easy in the book, you mentioned kind of an alphabet soup of agencies that are involved in the COVID response, including HHS, DHS, FEMA, DOD. The list goes on, and, and I appreciate the glossary in the back because some of them I didn't even, I've never heard of. But how do these organizations, how can they come together 
and coherently manage the next crisis. Yeah, I think there's in one of those annexes at the back of the book are recommendations for the federal government to change that. The end of World War II, the Department of Defense was in a similar situation. And uh, it's why the National Security Council was established to advise the president on how to handle national security problems. The problem we have in America with public health problems is that uh, there is no system like the NSC for public health. Now, there was some changes a few years ago that put some experts on the NSC in public health, but they're no operator. And so the president of the United States, President Trump at the time, had to put an ad hoc committee together that was run by his vice president that tried to organize the United States government into a cohesive response. And they, they did a laudable job of that. But there's no reason that the president of the United States or the vice president ought to be involved at the level of operational deployment of assets. And you can see what happened as arguments broke out in the media between the president and his team and the governor of New York, who was screaming for ventilators. I, I make the argument in the book that he didn't need as many ventilators as he was uh, screaming for. And if you gave him all of those ventilators, you'd deplete the entire national stockpile. And what happened is 6,000 ventilators got sent up to the governor of Cuomo. And uh, 13 days later, he decided he didn't need them. And he started distributing himself to other areas of the country, including Michigan and Maryland. The point I'm trying to make in all of this, and I think one of the reasons your listeners will enjoy the book, is we make some points of, of really how to evolve the public health processes to an NSC-like structure that would allow the government to really enter into a professional and a well-organized response to a national threat to the American people, the same as the NSC works to the to America from other areas of threat or, or hostile nation. So you mentioned that leaders have to learn how to manage risk in, especially in resource-constrained environments like COVID. And you also mentioned in the book that there had been kind of a punitive culture at the VA that if people took risks, they put themselves at risk for having some kind of disciplinary action. Now, some of that action was necessary, but how do you create the culture in an organization where people are able to take those risks in a resource-constrained environment and not be afraid to put their neck out to make the right decision when a governor is screaming that they need more just in case? I make the point in the book that... When people start a discussion by saying out of an abundance of caution is an excuse for doing more than they really needed to do. And you can deplete austere assets pretty quickly. 70% of your listeners are combat veterans and they understand what combat is and the fact that in combat, you may not have the luxury of waiting to have every bit of information before you take action. As a combat surgeon, you know that. You have to take action at times and you either figure it out as you go along or things become clear as time progresses. Handling a pandemic is the same thing. And I needed an organization that was willing to take risk. What we decided to do is to get to 60% on any decision where you had a greater likelihood of success than failure and then just take an action and what I said to my leaders was, I've got your back. I will take the heat if this fails. And that, but they had to take action. They couldn't sit on the sidelines 
till this was deliberate decision-making. Think about the people you've deployed with who said, wow, the Army was a lot easier to deal with. The Navy was a lot easier to deal with. The Air Force was a lot easier to deal with when we were deployed in combat than it is when we got back to garrison because we were able to bypass and take risks. And let me give you an example of that. I thought we could have COVID positive and COVID negative hospitals. And in New York in March of 2020, we were in a mess trying to support the overwhelmed hospitals. So I said, well, we'll make our Manhattan hospital COVID positive. We'll make our Bronx hospital COVID negative. They're both very strong academically, really strongly led, great medical staffs, great nursing staff. Well, once we implemented that, it took about 24 hours to recognize that the veterans showing up at the emergency room in the COVID negative hospital knew they were sick. They just didn't know they had COVID. And so immediately we began to break down. The other thing is people had confidence in the facilities they chose. And you couldn't move them to another hospital because it was convenient for us, because it was hard for their families. And we began to recognize that that was just sort of a silly decision. And the other thing that was happening was much of our staff was developing COVID at that time. And that was also contaminating the facilities at both sites. So we very publicly backed away from that decision. And I took credit for the decision and dealt with the repercussions of that in the New York media. But what I'm trying to get to in my response to this is that in an emergency situation, you've got to take your best shot and recognize the fact that you could be wrong. You as a leader must be humble enough to say, you know what, I got this one wrong. I need to change direction. And you need to do that transparently so that all your subordinate leaders can realize that your ego is not going to get in the way of what it is to lead through this this emergency. So you mentioned that the VA's primary commitment is to those veterans that are enrolled in the system. How do you make decisions that may impact their care when faced with overwhelming demands of, let's say, non-enrolled vets and non-beneficiaries relying on that mission for DHA backstop during a crisis? So our fear was that unenrolled veterans would enroll by showing up in our emergency room and overwhelm us. And as you know, about half of America's veterans are enrolled in healthcare with the VA. And our thought was, well, we're going to pick up another two or three million people enrolled in our system. So therefore, when we grew the system by 4,000 critical care beds, we kept 2,500 reserve of that growth reserved across the nation for veterans and dedicated 1,500 beds of critical care beds to, to the civilian population. And then we manage it every day. It was a discussion every day in every market of how many can we do? How many can we take? Let me give you some examples of that. We had a lot of trouble in the Western Midwest, especially in Navajo Nation and in some of the other areas of Indian country that they just ran out of capacity. And many of those were also veterans. And we had a really tough time making sure that we maintain capacity while supporting the Indian Health Service and the Navajo Nation healthcare delivery system and the Alaska Native healthcare delivery system was really tough to find the right balance. But that was a discussion that occurred every day in the health operation. How can I commit to this mission that's asking for 50 civilians to fill our beds? Can we do it and, and still maintain 
our capacity to make sure that every veteran that needs care can come in. And we were able to uh, walk that tightrope very, very successfully. One of the things that the, the VA had been in the news and other healthcare organizations have been in the news for has been a delayed care for primary care type indications. During COVID, that spread to just about every health system. People were delaying care because they were afraid to go to the hospital or they just didn't have access to care. How did the VA deal with that situation where patients couldn't get in or were afraid to come in and you felt like maybe we're missing some diagnoses that are important and could eventually cause some harm to these patients? Yeah, I think we're still picking up the pieces on delayed cancer diagnosis, a delayed therapy, people afraid to go in. Look, I, I lost my own brother to a ruptured gallbladder um, who was afraid to go to the emergency because of COVID. And he thought he could wait it out and, and didn't, and it cost him his life. And so we reached out very actively and we maintained part of our ambulatory system on a telemedicine basis to reach out to people and, and work resolution of their concerns to get them in. I thought it worked pretty effectively. We ended up doing literally tens of thousands of telemedicine visits daily. We found that the video visits were most effective. Telephone visits were not as effective. We distributed 100,000 iPads to veterans that were in rural areas and did cellular enabled iPads so that we could reach people and do video visits with them to sustain their diabetes control, blood pressure control, or whatever else they needed, including encouraging them to come in. I also recorded videos that we distributed nationally to veterans and to our employees about the need to sustain themselves and their own health care to go for their routine visits and to make sure that uh, we did not see the result of delayed care. We tried to quantify how much care was actually necessary for some of the bills that were passed in Congress. But I have to tell you that I think that it will be a decade before we fully understand the effect of delayed and deferred health care across the nation. You mentioned that the appendix of the book has a list of some of the leadership lessons that you learned and wanted to pass on. And you've covered a couple of them so far in the discussion, but I wanted to talk, talk about a couple. You say, using the stability of today to prepare for tomorrow is important. What, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I, let me respectfully say to you, it's about preparing for the chaos. So having dealt with wartime, and peacetime in my military career, I recognized how fragile a stability is and the fact that in a matter of, of one morning, your whole life can change. And I think all of us remember September 11th uh, that we're serving in uniform at that time and how our lives changed so dramatically as we moved into that period of chaos. So I, as a leader, have always believed that whatever stability I have today it is necessary for me to improve the readiness of the organizations that I am responsible for to move into to, to the chaos of tomorrow because tomorrow or tonight may come apart pretty quickly. And so it is a, a leadership philosophy that I've had, frankly, before I even entered the military, I would spend four or five years on the fire service in a community and I described it as 95% quiet, 5% sheer terror. But it was that, that if, if during the 95%, I was not preparing for the 5%, I would not be successful and it was going to cost lives. 
And I carried that into the military. I carried that into my combat time. Whatever time I was given was not rest time. It was time for preparing for what could occur and the, either the flow of casualties or the flow of ill patients and to create the agility in the organization that would allow to move to the future. But uh, you need to know that in my book signings, it's one of the most asked for discussions about preparing for the chaos of tomorrow. The second is be the calm in the middle of the storm. And I've always believed that my subordinates will be less willing to come to me if I react emotionally to whatever bad news they've given. And there's not one of us as leaders that don't say to our subordinates, bring me everything, even bring me bad news. But if you react in an emotional manner to that, nobody's going to bring you that news. And in order to get a transparent discussion going, you have to be the calm in the middle of the storm. I Look, I, I ran multiple hurricane responses in some pretty horrendous situations during my five years that I was at the VA, both as the principal deputy and then eventually as the acting undersecretary. And it was always chaos, especially in the middle of the night. And you had to provide stability to that line leader who was out in the middle of a mess. And I can remember very clearly a hurricane that came up the East Coast that forced us to abandon the, the Charleston, the VA medical center, which sits on a peninsula sticking out into the water with most of the rest of the Charleston healthcare system. And we needed to move patients in the middle of the night. And it was a tough one to do. And just the calm that we were able to provide to that line leader and allow him to see exactly how much support was surrounding him to move more than a hundred patients in a period of four or five hours was was extraordinarily effective. But be the calm in the middle of a storm as a leader will will help you tremendously to respond to these types of events. You also mentioned, and we've discussed a couple of them, some of the recommendations from the VA's after action review and your experience of how the government should organize change to prepare for that chaos of tomorrow. You mentioned the National Security Committee concept. Are there any other recommendations that you say this one is the priority of the 10 or so that you listed? What is the most important one in your mind? I think evolution of the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness is is one of the most important things that could happen. The ASPR exists within Health and Human Services and should be the coordinating body for the federal response. It should be the chair of the health portion of the NSC. Look, the VA has got a healthcare system to run. DOD's got healthcare systems to run. It's got other missions, just like the VA does. I am not proposing that the VA or DOD chair this. I think that happened on a de facto basis. But I think the, the strengthening of the office of the ASPR which the current administration has done a laudable job of trying to move forward. I think having that strengthened by legislation and appropriate funding will allow us to move preparedness forward. It should also be the centerpiece of the national strategic stockpile of the industrial-based transformation of making decisions on how much risk America is willing to take on onboarding or onshoring is the word I should use onshoring the production of pharmaceuticals and materials like PPE 
There's a portion of the book in which I describe my need to engage civilian entrepreneurs to fly planes from China to the United States, delivering more than 90,000 pounds of PPE two to three times a week for me to sustain my operations because I couldn't buy material in that environment where people wanted me to pay in advance. When you buy stuff in the American government, you got to see the stuff that's being delivered. And therefore, I was buying 180,000 to to 270,000 pounds a week of airplanes filled with Chinese PPE. And it was done because I, I got a civilian entrepreneur to actually fund that. And then we we paid them back through the state of New Hampshire, and I described that. But the United States has to, to grow up a, a structure through the ASPR, is my recommendation, through HHS that really manages the industrial base and the strategic stockpile that allows America to be better prepared for the inevitable next pandemic. And, and you and I served during the Ebola crisis, and we were lucky in America at what happened. I would remember that although we had less than a dozen deaths in the United States from Ebola, the world experienced 11,000 deaths, and it could have been 10 times that. And so I think as we begin to think about the future of public health emergencies is, of the ASPR to me is the centerpiece. And I'd, I'd welcome a debate on any other area that, that should handle it, but I don't see the, either the VA or DOD being the centerpiece of integration of these systems and the industrial and the strategic stockpiles. I see that happening within HHS, but I'd welcome a debate on that if somebody felt there was a better way to do it. Well, I, I enjoyed reading your book and I enjoyed our discussion and I want people to pick up the book and read it. If you could give us your 30 second elevator speech about why it's important and why someone should read it, I'll, I'll give you this opportunity. There's not a leader who's faced a crisis that will not benefit from spending some time thinking about the history of the decisions we made and, and what was successful and what was not. And uh, what you don't want to be is somewhere down your career path, not having learned those lessons from somebody else who bears the scars of those events. And so I'm really proud of what the VA did. And the book has been received extraordinarily well across the nation by not only healthcare leaders, but other leaders that, that have struggled with how to grow their organizations. So I thank you for the opportunity, and I thank you for uh, the great work that you continue to do to get these messages out. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Richard A. Stone on Wardock's podcast. Rich, congratulations on your excellent book, and we appreciate you sharing your insights, and thank you for your service, both to the nation in uniform and with the VA. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.